If you would, would you please turn in your Bibles to Psalm 1? First Psalm. And so this summer, while Bill was on sabbatical, we looked at the Beatitudes, and which is this section that's the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, this famous sermon that Jesus preaches in Matthew 5 to 7. And so the good life is what we talked about. And this idea of blessed is this person who does these things. And we looked at Jesus's upside down kingdom. And so this morning, when Bill asked me to preach, I wanted to continue looking at this idea of the good life. And you may be able to pick up on it from those first words right there in Psalm 1, where it starts with, blessed is the man who. And again, it's very reminiscent of what we talked about in the Beatitudes. Blessing. What is blessing? It's this happiness. So happy is the man who does these things. And so here's the thing about Psalm 1 that we need to know before we get into it today is that it's the gateway to all the Psalms. It's how the Psalms begin, 150 Psalms, and this is the gateway. A lot of commentators call it the preface. It's what sets the stage for all the Psalms that comes after it. And and James Boyce, he was a pastor, uh, commentator, very, very smart guy. He he calls it a practical Psalm, a, a Psalm for like everyday life for us. And so what he means by this is that its purpose is to take belief and faith and doctrine, all these things that we have up here in our head and our heart, and then to put them outwards. How do we live that out? And so that's what's going on here in Psalm 1. And right from the get-go, it shows us how we're to find happiness in life. What does the good life look like? And so it's interesting that this first Psalm, that the pursuit of the good good life is its topic. You know, if we were to think about how would I arrange the Psalms and what order would I put them in? Maybe we would think it should start with praise and begin with Psalm 150. Maybe we think it should talk about suffering and deliverance and start with Psalm 130. Maybe it should start with the vastness of God and his care over humans like us, like Psalm 8 shows. Or why not start with one of these direct messianic Psalms like 22 or 110 and highlight the Messiah that was to come right from the very beginning of Psalms. But it doesn't start with any of those. It starts with this one. And its concern is with the good life and how it can be had. And so before we go on and talk some more, let's read it together. Psalm 1 starting in verse 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers." The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Here's the reading of God's word this morning. Before we go forward, let's seek his help to understand what's going on here. Father, again, we come to you this morning as, as sinners, as people uh, with, with uh, finite minds. And we come to a passage like this 
Father, we ask that you would teach us this morning, that you would open our eyes and our ears and our hearts to see the truth of your gospel. Father, we ask that you show us Jesus this morning, even in this text here in Psalm 1. We pray this in the name of your Son. Amen. Well, this week I was reading an article from the Atlantic in its culture section, and it was tied, it came out like a couple years ago, but it was titled, Millennials Just Get Keanu Reeves. And so it said that there's some in Generation X that dismissed him, but that he's a favorite actor of the millennial generation. And, uh, and I do have to admit that I like Keanu Reeves a lot. I love Keanu Reeves. And so as I was reading this article about Keanu Reeves, I was reminded of one of my all-time favorite Keanu Reeves movies, actually one of my favorite movies of all time, and it's The Matrix. And so you've probably seen The Matrix. It's been out since 1999, and so there's this scene in it that's extremely well-known. Even if you haven't seen the movie The Matrix, you've probably even heard of this scene. And it's very on, early on in the movie, and this scene is actually even used today in political and pop culture as well. And so early on in the movie, Neo, the main character, he meets this mysterious person, Morpheus. And he meets him in a room, and, and Morpheus is talking to him about The Matrix and how The Matrix is all around him. And what makes the scene so iconic is Morpheus holds out two hands. And you probably remember what's in each hand. There's a red pill in one hand and a blue pill in the other hand. And he's talking to Neo and he says, you now must make a choice. Which pill will you take, the red one or the blue one? And he says, you take the blue pill and the story ends. You wake up in your bed and you believe whatever you want to believe. But you take the red pill and you stay in Wonderland and I'll show you how deep the rabbit hole goes. And so what Morphe is essentially doing here with Neo, he says, you've got two options. And now you must choose. Which option will you choose? There's two paths you can take. Which one do you take? There is no third way. And so this idea of two ways, it's not original to the matrix. They didn't come up with this. In fact, there's this early church document called the Didache. It was in like the first and second century. And it was like this manual that churches used on how to run the church as information. And they're like, how to do baptisms. And it's about 1900 years old. And it's called the Didache. And the very first line in the Didache says this. It says, there are two ways, one of life and one of death but a great difference between the two ways. Now, where do they get this from the Didache? Well, we can look at the Sermon on the Mount, what we looked at this summer. And at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, that same series where our Beatitudes came from, at the end of it, there's a series of two ways that you can choose. And there's a choice that has to be made. You get two gates, two roads, two trees, and there are two kinds of fruit. You have two houses, and there are two foundations. And so that's where our conviction of the gospel this morning came from, is this, which gate will you enter? Which way will you take? There's a, there's a wide one and a narrow one. Only one of these roads leads to life. And so all of these contrasting choices, they find their root in Psalm 1. The two choices that we have. And so James Boyce says Psalm 1 is the clearest, most carefully developed, and first full expression of this idea in the Bible, that there's two paths that we can take, and you must choose. And so in Psalm 1, the psalmist says there's two paths you can take. Which do you take? These paths are the ones whose souls are in a death spiral, or the one whose soul is being reawakened by God. 
Those are the two options. Tripper Longman, who is a professor at Westminster Seminary, he writes some of the best commentaries on the Old Testament. He says it this way, and this is our charge this morning. Psalm 1 deliberately draws two portraits in our minds, the portrait of the wicked man and the portrait of the wise man. The question then is posed, which are we? As we enter the sanctuary of the Psalms to worship and petition the Lord, which side are we on? And so that's our question this morning as well. What side are we on? And so as we look at this passage today, I have three points for us, three things that I think we can see from this passage. And the first thing we'll look at is the path to walk. The second thing is the picture that we see. And the third thing is the product of their life. So we got path, picture, and product. And those are our three points this morning. So let's look at our first point, the path. And so the psalm begins, if you look down at verse 1, it says, blessed is the man. Now, now this is talking about men and women here. It's not just exclusively men. Uh, If you have an NIV Bible, it says, blessed is the one. So blessed is the person. And then he goes on to tell you what makes that person blessed. But I want to look at this word blessed here. And so when we were in the Beatitudes this summer, we said that blessing was the sense of divine happiness. This divine happiness that is given to God's people. But the word here in Hebrew is slightly different from that than it is in the New Testament. And there's not really an English word that fully conveys its meaning. And so it's more of this state of total well-being. It's more of like this disposition that we have. Uh, Mark Futado, he was my Hebrew professor. He's super smart Hebrew scholar. He's probably forgotten more things that I've ever learned about the Hebrew language. And he has his own translation of this word. And he says, it's, oh, the joys of those who blank. Oh, the joys of those who. And so the, the question that we want to start right off the bat is, how can I have that sense of total well-being and joy and happiness in my life? If it starts with blessed is the one who does this, how can I be that one? How can I be that one that is in that state of happiness? And so the first way the psalmist does this is he says what the happy person does not do. He starts off with a negative. And so look at verse 1. It says, who walks not in the counsel of the wicked nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. And so did you pick up on that downhill movement there from each of those three lines? And this is what I mean. I mean, this is what I meant a few minutes ago when I said there's this death spiral going on. A a, a downward spiral that just gets worse and worse and worse is one path. Notice how it goes from walking to standing to sitting. How it goes from counsel or advice to way to seat. And then wicked to sinners to scoffers, which is mockers. So let me explain what I mean. Walking in the counsel of the wicked, what that means is the way of thinking. I'm getting advice from the wrong crowd. I'm spending time around those who I do not need to be around. And so what it is is this disposition, it's this mindset. And that's where it starts. And then he goes on the next step, the way of the sinner, which is when the advice and the mindset now becomes actions and behaviors. It starts being carried out in their lives. 
It's their way. And then lastly, the seat of scoffers, it suggests belonging, someone settling down, being comfortable with, and they want nothing to do with the things of God. I remember watching a TV show where they often say the phrase, I want a seat at the table. And what does that mean? It means I belong in the room, right? It's the seat of the scoffers. They become comfortable with it. And so an easy way to remember this path is it goes from belief to behavior to belonging. It goes from a mindset to outward actions to being firmly rooted in this thing that it's talking about here. And the psalmist says, the one that's happy, the blessed one, does not do those things. And now this is important because one of the first things we see about this path is that it's countercultural. Right? It doesn't go along with what everybody else is going along with. And so it's more than just being a good old boy. Right? It's actively resisting the way that the world wants us to go. Uh, when I was in middle school and high school, I would go to a youth retreat every year. Uh, it was the Grace Presbyterian Youth Retreat. It was in Twin Lakes in Jackson. And the name of it was Against the Flow. Against the Flow. And so that's exactly the path that the blessed one is supposed to take. To be against the flow. Uh, the way the New Testament puts this is in Romans 12, verse 2. And, and there's a translation, you might not be familiar with it, it's called the Phillips translation. And I like this translation here from Romans 12. And it says this, it says, Do not let the world around you squeeze you into its own mold. Don't let the world around you squeeze you into its own mold. Now, now this can look like many different things in our lives. But I really think one of the immediate points of application here is, is what do we do with peer pressure? You know, what, whether it's people at school that want you to act a certain way to be cool, whether it's coworkers in the office that want you to join in on mocking somebody, don't let the world squeeze you into its mold. That's what's going on here in the first verse. And so that's what he says that he doesn't do. So let's look at what he does do in verse 2. This is the happy one. His delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. And so I really love this right here. And so let's break it down. Uh, he, he delights. He finds joy in something. It's not a burden to him, right? He delights in something. And so what does he delight in? The law of the Lord. Now, how many of us would say, I delight in all these rules and regulations and what's going on here? Uh, there, there's this, there's this uh, remark by C.S. Lewis where he looks at this and he says, I, I find this uh, bizarre. that any, I, can, I can get why people would love his grace and his mercy, but I can't get why people would love his law. And so when it says the law here, it's, it's not just the laws to follow. It's not just the set of law, and it's actually a Hebrew word, and it's probably a Hebrew word that you've all probably heard of before, and it's Torah, right? Torah. And so, I can explain why, but now for just the sake of time, just take my word for it, but when he says he delights in the Torah, he's talking about what we call the whole Bible. It's not just the subsection of the law that's in the Bible, but it's talking about the whole thing. It's God's words, even the words in the Psalms that he delights in. And C.S. Lewis, he comes around to this point and he says that it's the word of God that we see the divine mind and see its beauty. And this is what Lewis says. He says, it's the language of a man ravished by moral beauty. He delights in the law of the Lord. 
And so again, remember Psalm 1, it lays this groundwork for the rest of the Psalms. It's, it's like the preface for the Psalms. And so if you were to keep going on in the Psalms, you'd eventually make your way to Psalm 119. It's the longest chapter in the Bible, 176 verses. And it's all about God's Word and delighting in it. In fact, it becomes even the ultimate source of comfort for those who are afflicted. One of my favorite verses of all time, Psalm 119, 71. It was good for me that I was afflicted. Why? That I might learn your statutes. The law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of gold and silver pieces. But what I really want to point out here is one of my favorite songwriters, Wendell Kimbrew. We sing some of his songs here, but he has several songs where he's taken the Psalms and reimagined them, where he puts them into modern language. And he has this song that's based off of Psalm 119, 97 to 104. And the chorus that he repeats over and over again in this psalm is this. It says, Oh, how I love to hear you speak to me. Oh, Lord, I hang on every word. How I love to hear you speak to me. And, and the place that we find God speaking to us is in the Bible. It's in his word. And so that's what the psalmist is saying here in Psalm 1, is that the path of the man of God is saying, oh, how I love to hear you speak to me, how I hang on every single word that you say. And so here's our question from this first part of this, is what path are you taking? What, what path are you on? Do, do we find our counsel do we find our advice in the ways of the wicked, or do we find our counsel in the Word of God? So those are the two paths. So that brings us to our second point this morning, the picture. So after looking at the path of the believer's life, the psalmist, he then gives us a picture of it. He shows us what it looks like. It's like, it's like a picture book, right? Right here in the Bible. And so he really gives us two pictures. He gives us one of the believer and one of the non-believer. And so what we see here in verse 3 is a picture of the one who delights in the Word of God. If you look at verse 3, it says, He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and all that he does, he prospers. Now, I'll try to be really quick here, but of all these little clauses, they all have significance. He's not just rambling, but there's a purpose behind what he's saying here in describing this tree. Uh, Ralph Davis, he's another Hebrew scholar, he points out this. He says, the righteous man has stability. He's planted. He has vitality. It's right near streams of water. There's this source of water that feeds it. It has productivity. It's fruitful. It has durability. It doesn't wither. In prosperity, all that he does, he prospers. Now, if you're thinking right now, what do you mean all that he does, he prospers? And so, I don't want you to get hung up on this last line. Uh, the picture that he's painting here is this broad brush picture. That, that yes, in general, those who are God's people do prosper. But there are times where we would all look at our lives and say, well, that wasn't very prosperous. So, what does it mean here when he says all that he does, he prospers? And so if you want to see some setbacks in life and what that looks like, you don't have to go very far in the Psalms. You can go right to Psalm 3 and you see a whole host of setbacks in the Christian life. It happens quick in the Psalms, but I like what Ralph Davis says about this last line. He says, don't expect the psalmist to ruin a fine, succinct summary by cluttering it with howevers and neverthelesses. 
And so here's the logic so far. Verse 1, the one who says no to the world. Verse 2, the one who says yes to God's word is the one in verse 3 that's rooted and flourishing. But there's another picture here, and it happens in verse 4. And it's very short. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Now, this idea of chaff is used multiple times in the Bible. It's in Jeremiah, it's in Isaiah, it's here in the Psalms. It's, it's over and over again. It's this picture that God uses for the wicked. And what chaff is, is this casing that's around grain. And so what you would do is you would take this grain and put it in a pile and they would put these animals that would come through and walk over it. Maybe you crush it with your hands and, and get it good loosened up. And what you'd do is you'd take a pitchfork and you'd grab the grain and you'd throw it into the air. And the wind, little, just a little breeze, would blow the chaff away from the grain and the grain would fall back down, the part that you could use. And so that's what chaff is. And so in contrast to the rooted tree, all it takes to blow away the chaff is just a little bit of wind, a breeze, something that we probably would want right now with it being so hot. Chaff is rootless and it's marked by brevity. It's, it's, it's here for a moment and it just, it just blows away, right? And so you can even see how brief it is in the explanation. There's 17 words in Hebrew that describe the tree and just six words here using to describe the wicked. It's short. It's gone in an instant. It's brief. It's light. It's weightless. It's unrooted. It's worthless. It's fruitless. It's empty. It's futile. And so that's what he's saying here is chaff. And Psalm 92 gives us another picture of a tree. And it starts in verse 12 of Psalm 92. And this is what it says about the tree that it describes in Psalm 92. The righteous flourish like the palm tree and grow like a cedar in Lebanon. They are planted in the house of the Lord. They flourish in the courts of our God. They still bear fruit in old age, and they are ever full of sap and green to declare that the Lord is upright. He is my rock, and there is no unrighteousness in him. And so if you're skeptical at all about this, about this idea about the tree and the chaff, one of the things that we could do is I can point you to many, many older saints here in this room that could gladly testify to this truth that through all their years that God has given them stability and sustaining throughout their lives, much like a gardener in its tree. And so we can just look to our older brothers and sisters in Christ and ask if that's true. And I think they would all agree with this Psalm 92 that God has always been there for them. And so we've seen the path that we must go. Now we've seen a picture of that path. And so let's look at our third point, the product. And so what do I mean by product? Uh, what I mean is what does it produce? What, what, what is the end result of this path and of this picture? And so what we see is that we see the end. And so right from the very beginning of Psalms, we get to look forward to the end of the corridor of time and see the ending and what happens at the end. And if you look at verse 5, we see this. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Now, we would be foolish if we said that this psalm doesn't end on a somber note. Right? It starts off with blessing, and here we are talking about perishing. It's kind of somber. And so Psalm 1 ends with this eye towards the future. And, and in particular, what it's talking about is talking about the day of judgment that's going to come. 
the day of judgment is going to come from everyone who's ever lived. The Psalms begin with the end in mind. And so I think there's a few things that are worth pointing out here. Remember, we have two paths, two pictures that we have, and now we have two products, two endings. There is no third way. It's one or the other. And so on the one hand, the path of the wicked is like chaff, and it says they'll perish. But on the other hand, the path of the righteous is like the tree, and he prospers, right? It's the opposite of perish. And so what it ultimately boils down to is that the wicked, those who do not follow God, they're left empty-handed. They have nothing to stand on. As Ralph Davis points out again, he says, they won't stand in the judgment means they'd have no justification. Like they have no leg to stand on. When it says they, they won't be in the congregation of the righteous, it means they're going to have no communion with God. They're outside of God's community. And then they have no hope, as verse 6 says, they will perish. No justification, no communion, no hope. That's what the path of the wicked produces. And so now we might be tempted to say that this is harsh, but I want you to remember what it is that they delight in. Ultimately, each of these two paths get what they want. They get what they delight in. But the other product here is the one of the blessed one, the righteous. And the only line we get is this, for the Lord knows the way of the righteous. And that's it. That's all it says about the righteous end. And so the key thing to point out here is that when he says that he knows, is this special part of speech called a participle. I'm not going to bore you with what that means or what that is, but what it means is this, is that it's this ongoing action down to the very core of being of who God is, that he intimately knows. It's more than just knowing about the ups and downs of your life, but it's this intimate care that God has for his people, like, like he watches over every single step that they take. And as Futado points out, this is the ultimate basis of the experience of being blessed, right? That God cares for us in such a way that he watches over every step. That's what the good life is that we're recipients, that we're objects of affection of God. And so we can remember back to Psalm 23, that great promise that he gives us, that as we're walking through the valley of shadow death, why can we take comfort? For you're with me. You are with me. And so when believers, when they stand at the day of judgment, they can say that he has loved me my whole life and he's never forsaken me. And so even now he will love me and not forsake me. And that's what it means when it says that the Lord knows the way of the righteous. And so one last thing about these two outcomes here, these two products, they're polar opposites. And the text underscores that. And so we see it in the first and last words of this psalm. If you look in your English translation, it begins with blessed, and the last word is perish. They're opposites. They're opposite ends of the spectrum. Uh, in Hebrew, again, not trying to bore you, but the first letter of the Hebrew word of the first word blessed is aleph, and the last one is tav. It's like aleph to tav is the, the last two letters of the alphabet. It's what we would say they're far apart as A is from Z, right? These two things are polar opposites. They're different. They're far apart. And so let me close with this. I need to give a disclaimer about this, because if we read this psalm by itself, out of context, if this is all that we talk about, um, 
we might be tempted to say, okay, so if I just do what's right, I'll be blessed. If, if I just read my Bible, I will prosper. If I just don't hang out with the wrong people, that's what I need to have the good life. And if that's the conclusion that we draw, we're being led astray by that. Yes, we should do those things. We should delight in God's word. We should be putting it into practice. But our happiness, our blessing, our, our hope doesn't come from doing any of these things in and of themselves. But our happiness and hope is in the one who watches over all of our steps, who continuously knows our path. And so doing all these things comes about as a byproduct of that happiness and hope. And so remember, the man isn't blessed because he's prosperous. He's prosperous because of the blessing that the Lord gives him. And that blessing is that the Lord knows all of his steps. He cares over him in an intimate way. And so how do I know this? How, how can I say this? Well, we need to ask the question of who is this psalm describing? We asked that same question when we looked at the Beatitudes. Are, are they about us or are they about somebody else? And so who is this psalm describing? Well, if I asked you, how well do you do all these things? Do you delight in the, Lord, the law of the Lord? Do you, do you meditate on it day and night always, right? Do you ever hang out with the wrong crowd? Do you ever get advice from the wrong place? I think if we're honest with ourselves, our answer is maybe something like, well, well, well sometimes I do it, but, but I don't do those things perfectly. And so this is exactly what Psalms is screaming to us here. There is someone that keeps all these per perfectly. There's someone that we can look to. There's a man that does every single one of these things without failing. As Martin Luther points out, at the very beginning of his commentary on this psalm, he says, the first psalm speaks literally concerning Christ. It's about Jesus. Jesus is the perfect man. He kept the law perfectly. He loves the Father perfectly. And he's the Savior of the sinner. And as Jim Boyce says, he says, it is he who stands at the portal of this book to show us the way to live, but help us do it as well. But also to help us do it. And so how does he do it? How does Jesus help us live like this? And what are we to do? John 14, 6, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I'm the path, right? I'm the way. And so our way is through Jesus. And in him we receive salvation, communion, and everlasting life with our God. And so not only that, Jesus' closing words in Matthew, we get this great promise. It's the last thing he leaves us in with Matthew's gospel. And he says, I am with you always. It's the same promise that we have here. For I'm with you. The Lord knows your way. He knows your path. I'm with you. And so there is no checklist. There is no amount of good that you can do to earn this. And all that's required is faith. And so our comfort of the gospel today said it best, that Rusty read. I am the door, and if anyone enters by me, talking about Jesus, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. And so my question for you this morning is, do you know this Jesus, the Savior of sinners, and the blessing of believers? Let's pray.